grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1034. I'm excited to preach this passage. It's not every week. It's talk about a dragon in church. I'm even more excited to tell you about a lamb who conquered the dragon. Uh, In chapter 12, John begins another cycle of seven, and this time it is seven signs, and these last from chapter uh, chapter 12 here all the way to the uh, beginning of chapter 15. Uh, and they tell a story that stretches from Jesus' ascension uh, to Jesus' return, uh, and then everything in between. So they're kind of giving you a synopsis of what's going on, um, and that includes our present struggle in in tribulation. Uh, They also celebrate Christ's triumph over evil, Uh, but once again, John does this by layering Uh, imagery from the Old Testament. Um, Have you ever put together one of those puzzles where each puzzle piece is its own picture? You might have a mountain on one, a car on the other, but when when you put all of those pieces together, the hues from these individual pieces end up creating a a, a much larger portrait that that, uh, tells a story that you didn't imagine before when you were just putting the together the individual pieces. Um, That's kind of what John is doing with the Old Testament here. He is taking these various portraits and putting them together like a puzzle so that in the end we're seeing this uh, grand uh, uh, picture. Uh, And and the picture he wants you to see in chapter 12 is Christ's victory over Satan and his ongoing care for you in tribulation. Christ's victory over Satan and his ongoing care for you in tribulation. Let's hear the way God puts it, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels, fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven." And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now let's take this in three, three parts. Uh, part one, Satan fails to destroy Christ and his people. Satan fails to destroy Christ and his people. In verse one, John sees a woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Uh, Song of Songs, chapter six, verse 10, also describes a woman this way. Uh, it says, who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun? The woman of chapter 12 is a woman of radiant, heavenly beauty. But, but her heavenly beauty actually serves, in, uh, it, it becomes a stark contrast to another woman that John will see in chapter 17. That woman in chapter 17 is a great prostitute, and she is clothed only with earthly treasures like gold and, and pearls and, and stuff. The woman of chapter 12 is greater. She is heavenly. She's one of, of heavenly radiance. And she also has on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, some have suggested that Genesis 37 stands in the background here. You remember Joseph having the dream uh, uh, where the, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to him, and those heavenly bodies there represented uh, uh, Jacob and his family, that is, that is Israel. Also, the number 12 in Revelation represents God's people. That's really the first clue in understanding who this woman represents. Uh, you know, some will want to limit it to, to, uh, to, to Mary, since there's a woman giving birth to the Christ child, right? Uh, but what we're seeing in this contrast between chapter 12 and chapter 17 is both of these women are, are, have collective identities. Uh, um, so so she, she, this, this woman here... Uh, represents true Israel, uh, the 12 stars there, true Israel. She is daughter Zion, 
that you see talked about throughout the Old Testament. She is God's elect people who long for the Messiah. Now, notice how she's pregnant and she is crying out uh, in birth pains. Uh, the prophets portrayed Zion as a woman in labor. So Micah chapter 4. Micah 4 verses 9 and 10 is a great example where God's people are suffering in captivity and it says, Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. And so these birth pains are the longing uh, of God's people for the Messiah to come forward. And, and, uh, and Micah chapter 5 if you keep reading in Micah, Micah 5, verses 2 to 5, we read it all the time at Christmas, uh, it promises the Messiah and God's people would be saved when she who is in labor has given birth. Who is she? She is Zion, daughter's, daughter Zion, okay? So John is borrowing that imagery. In verse 5, her child is the Messiah. In verses 6 to, and 13, she experiences wilderness like God's people experience wilderness. In verse 17, the woman has children, those who keep the commandments of God. And so she represents God's true people who long for the Messiah, and then once the Messiah comes, who follow the Messiah. But this woman also faces a great enemy, uh, a great red dragon. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 4, uh, red was the color of war. And so this dragon here is at war with, with the woman. Uh, he also has seven heads and ten horns. And when you get to chapter 13, verse 1, we will learn that the beast has seven heads and ten horns. And uh, chapter 17, verse 7, then explains uh, those seven heads and ten horns as worldly powers who hate Christ. So these parallels in chapters 13 and 17 show that the dragon is actually the power behind uh, the earthly enemies of Christ. Verse 4 also says that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. That comes from Daniel chapter 8 verse 10. Uh, Daniel 8 verse 10 describes Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a wicked, evil ruler, uh, and, and him throwing the, 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 the stars to the ground is this image of this king who's, who's throwing the stars to the ground to try to exalt himself above God. God is the prince of the heavenly hosts, and by casting these stars down, he's trying to, to elevate himself above God. Well, the dragon does the same thing. He's a, he's a kingly figure who hates God. He's seeking to exalt himself above God. Notice that he's got... Uh, seven diadems, diadems being a royal headband by having seven of them, uh, he is trying to imitate God's power. He's trying to imitate God's authority. We also learn the dragon's identity in verse 9. It says that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. But we might ask, why a dragon? What's the the deal with this dragon imagery? Uh, Because God's enemies in the Old Testament were often uh, described as as dragons. Uh, Isaiah 26, uh, verse 17, uh, is is really interesting because 
uh, if you read Isaiah 26, verse 17, all the way to Isaiah 27, verse 1, you get an image very much like we're seeing here in Revelation, where, where God's people uh, are, are likened to a pregnant woman who's writhing in pain, and that pain included oppression from enemies who are then compared to Leviathan, a twisting and cruel serpent. Okay? Uh, in Ezekiel 32, verse 2, Pharaoh is likened to a dragon. And then so is Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 51, verse 34. He's like a dragon uh, who fills his belly with God's people. Okay? He, he's oppressing God's people. He's devouring them. So as God's enemy, this dragon also seeks to devour Christ. He stands before the woman to devour her, her, her child. It, it's, a, it's a hideous picture. You've got this vicious dragon that's preying on the most vulnerable. Now, there are layers to this image. It portrays a pattern that has roots that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, to that ancient serpent. Remember, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 16, we then see this narrative kind of playing out where Pharaoh, remember the dragon-like enemy, is seeking to drown the seed of the woman. He's seeking to drown the sons of Israel in the Nile. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, remember Goliath when uh, Wes pointed this out when he preached on, on that passage uh, 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 here that, that Goliath, his armor is described as a serpent's scales and he is trying to kill God's anointed. Right? Uh, and then, uh, of course, in Matthew chapter 2, Mary... Uh, uh, finally gives birth to, Messiah, to the Messiah. And what do we see? We see Herod trying to kill him. And so this, this story spans the Bible. The, the dragon has a history here of trying to stop the Christ. But notice that the dragon fails. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That comes from Psalm chapter 2. Uh, God's Son would, would rule the nation with a rod of iron. Uh, the, the whole Messianic community has their hopes bound up with this child. He is the long-awaited king. If he is devoured, there is no hope. But it says, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now that's kind of summarizing Jesus' life, isn't it? From the incarnation to the ascension. Right? The, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is implied uh, in, in, here. Um, and, and, and having finished his earthly mission, uh, he was caught up to God's throne. Now, chapter 5 already told us what that means. Because it's there in chapter 5 of Revelation where we, where we saw this vision of the throne room and who is on the throne at God's right hand. It is Jesus. Right? He, he, is, uh, he is the root of David, the lion 
of the tribe of Judah, and he has conquered, and he has conquered by giving his life as a lamb. Jesus entered death to break the power of sin, death, and the devil. Now he rules at God's right hand, and he's bringing all God's purposes to pass as he's breaking the seven seals. So Satan failed to thwart God's plan. All right, how do we know? Because Jesus was caught up to God's throne. Because Jesus is on the throne. Now, Jesus' ascension also kickstarts the tribulation uh, of 1,260 days, and that's what verse 6 is about. But let's save verse 6 until we get to verse 14, since they talk about the same thing. For now, the, the focus is Christ's enthronement and Satan's failure. That's part one. All right, part two. Christ, uh, part, part two is giving us the results of Christ's enthronement. Christ disbars Satan and enables his people to conquer Satan. Christ disbars Satan and enables his people to conquer Satan. John next sees a heavenly war. Uh, in verse 7, Michael and his angels fight the dragon. Uh, when Michael shows up in Scripture, uh, he's usually fighting evil powers on behalf of God's people. In fact, in, Jan- in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12, you, have, you get this picture of the invisible war in heaven uh, stands behind the visible wars that are happening on earth. Okay, and so what we're getting here is a peak into the war in heaven while there is a war on earth going on against Christ at the cross. Okay, so, but, but, but notice that there is a decisive, a decisive victory that has been, has been won. Michael throws the dragon out of heaven. To this point... Satan was able to accuse people in heaven, right? We find him doing this with Job in Job chapter 1 where he he comes among the sons of God and he questions Job's faithfulness. In Zechariah chapter 3, Satan accuses Joshua uh, for his uncleanness before the Lord. In Colossians uh, 2.14, it talks about a certificate of debt and this debt, this certificate... uh, speaks of the wrongdoings that we've done. We owe a payment, and Satan holds it over our heads like like, uh, blackmail. And then here in verse 10, Satan is the accuser of our brothers, right? He accuses them day and night before God. So this is a pattern throughout Scripture of what Satan does. However, John reveals a decisive change. Uh, Satan is no longer allowed to accuse us in heaven. What led to this change? Verses 10 to 12 give the answer. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered Him because of the blood of the Lamb. What? conquered the dragon. What work silences his accusations? What act disbarred him from God's court? It is Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' enthronement 
in heaven. The cross is where Jesus dies like a lamb for our sins, and the enthronement is where Jesus applies the benefits of his death to those who believe. Think about it. What sins can Satan accuse you for if Jesus' blood has washed them all away? What certificate of debt can, can he hold over your head if God has taken that certificate, as Colossians tells us, and nailed it to the cross? None, right? His accusations fall flat. Think about this too. Pharaoh, who was like a dragon, he oppressed God's people. But what was the decisive thing that overcame Pharaoh and got them out of Egypt? It was the death of the Passover lamb. It was the, by the Passover lamb's blood that God liberated his people from Pharaoh's tyranny. And that's a picture of kind of our, our state, right? We're, we're, we're enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. Satan oppresses us with accusations and guilt and hopelessness, but because of the Lamb's blood, we escape Satan's tyranny. They have conquered him, it says, because of the blood of the Lamb. Now let's return to verse 11 in a moment because there's more there. For now, let's move to part three. Uh, Christ protects and nourishes his people when Satan attacks. Christ protects and nourishes his people. When Satan attacks, Satan no longer has a place in heaven, but that doesn't mean he won't wreak havoc on earth. So verse 12 says, Woe to you, O, o earth and sea, which in chapter 13, that's where the beasts are going to rise up from the earth and the sea. Woe to you, O, o earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It's like... Uh, it's, it's like smashing the head of a snake and the body is still whipping it around, right? Uh, before it lays flat, he is, he is enraged. Uh, the decisive blow has come, but, but his tail is, is, is raging for a while. Uh, in verse 13, uh, we see this rage. Satan pursues the woman uh, just like Pharaoh pursued Israel uh, into the wilderness. In, uh, in, uh, in verse 15, we see this, this water, it's pouring like a river from Satan's mouth, uh, and the goal is to drown the woman. Now, the river comes from Satan's mouth, and we've seen this. This is a kind of repeated imagery in Re Revelation, right? There's a sword that comes from Jesus' mouth, and there's fire that comes from his his messenger's mouth, uh, and, and later in 16, we see frogs coming out of the beast's mouth. Um, all of these are referring to words, uh, to the, the message, right, that, that, that these, these leaders are, are giving, um, and the same is here. It's just what we're seeing, since we know he's a liar, right, that's what he called him, the deceiver of the whole world. Right? That's what's coming out of his mouth. So these, these words, these lies are causing this torrent against the woman. Uh, 
at the same time, you've got this mixed metaphor here of waters, rivers, flood, and, and these describe various threats uh, throughout the Scripture. So in Psalm 32, verse 6, there is a, a, the rush of great waters refers to just trouble in general. Uh, in Psalm 18, the, the torrent uh, symbolizes death, kind of closing, closing in on you, about to suffocate you. In uh, Psalm 69, the waters represent this, this unjust suffering uh, of, from enemies. So when you, when you put these, these two images together, Satan will try to overwhelm God's people with a flood of temptations and trials. He will, he will cause deception and, and, and he will lie and it will bring trials, a flood of temptations and trials into your life. Uh, then in verse 17, we find Satan making war on the rest of the woman's offspring, on those, it says, who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Um, so what we're seeing in this history is that Satan wasn't successful with the remnant of Israel. Satan wasn't successful with the, the Christ child. Satan wasn't successful with the initial uh, disciples. And so now he's going after the children, the offspring of the woman, and that's you. That's all of us who believe in Christ, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So now Satan is trying to destroy you. In chapter 13, we will learn that that war includes deception and persecution and various hardships. But notice, too, that we're not left to ourselves in this war when Satan comes against us. We also find God's uh, ongoing care for his people. In verse 14, the woman, it says, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. That's from Exodus 19, verse 4. By the way, I've rattled off a jillion Old Testament references today. If you've had a hard time keeping up with that, I post all of my manuscripts online. You can go there after Tuesday, and find them, all right? So uh, Exodus 19, verse 4, um, God rescues his people from Pharaoh, and it says, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Uh, so they didn't make it out by their own strength. It was holy God's grace. He came through, he delivered them, not just to, to kind of drop them off in the wilderness. No, he did it to bring them to himself in, in the wilderness. Okay, so there's a, there's a picture here that, just like that old exodus, we are experiencing a new exodus of sorts, a better one, a greater, a greater one. Notice also how the, the wilderness is the place where God meets his people and nourishes them. Only it's a bit more intimate in verse 6. It says, where she has a place prepared by God. Where she has a place prepared by, by God. So the wilderness isn't just depicted as this kind of barren wasteland. It's the place that God specially prepared for his people to meet, to meet with them and, and to be with them and, and to help them learn to trust him. It's the place, right, in the Old Testament, it's the place where he, he nourishes her. He makes, he makes the bitter water sweet for them. He, he, he gives them the, the, 
the water from the, the rock. Right? He, he gives them the, the manna from the, hev- from, from the heavens. He, he protects them from, from enemies. I think chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 17, alluded to this nourishment already. Jesus promises to nourish us with this, this hidden manna. And we talked about how that manna is the manna that comes from the presence of God, comes from God's throne. And He feeds us and nourishes us with this, this manna in the wilderness. Now, the 1,260 days, remember that symbolizes the period from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' return. Uh, we discussed this more extensively in chapter 11, and we got, and we got that from verse 6, where Jesus' enthronement uh, begins the 1,260 days, or the time, times, and half a time. Uh, in other words, what we're seeing here is a picture that all throughout the tribulation period, God is going to provide for His church all along the way until they meet Him again. So that there won't be a moment in tribulation when God's nourishment stops, dries up for, for His people. And then finally, in verse 16, we see the earth open its mouth and swallow the dragon's river. And that comes from Exodus chapter 15, verse 12. Uh, Pharaoh had trapped Israel at the Red Sea uh, and uh, God rescued them, and then the people, they, they break forth in singing, saying, you stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. The earth swallowed them. So John borrows that image to say God will not allow the dragon's threats to sweep away Christ's people. He will protect us, and he will nourish us. All right. That's the first of seven of these signs. Uh, How should a sign like this impact us? All right. For starters, you need to view the world this way. You need to view the world this way. As children of the woman, Revelation 12 is telling your story, your history. Right? Sometimes we talk about this even in our own testimonies that you've shared here with the body of Christ. You're, you're kind of telling your, your personal history and how that's formed and shaped you as, as, as who you are now. And, and John is saying, this history that I'm giving you is the, it's, it's the one defining everything about you. This, this is the one that should... should um, man, I'm trying to avoid the word metanarrative... Um, <laughs> The story that defines your story, right? And, and, and so you need, he's wanting you to see your life in light of this story. Um, so often our lives are shaped merely by the things we can see or the things we've uh, directly experienced. But here God is kind of pulling back the curtain so that we see more of reality, right? That the heavenly reality is what's determining uh, what's going on on earth, um, In his book, All Things New, Brian Tabb says, Revelation is not a riddle to be decoded by experts. It is a book meant to decode our reality, to capture our imaginations, and to master our lives. So has chapter 12 captured your imagination this morning? 
God, with these words, is meaning this, to sanctify our perception so that you see things as they really are. And that includes the reality of a dragon standing behind world powers and seeking to overwhelm you. And that also includes the reality of Jesus conquering the dragon and aiding the church in tribulation. We live by the stories we tell ourselves. So how will this picture inform the stories that you are telling yourself? When you view the world this way, for example, it will sober you in the fight against temptation. It will sober you in the fight against temptation. Uh, Suddenly, temptation and trial involve a seven-headed dragon. Have you read books or seen movies with with evil dragons? Maybe think, of, think about Smaug or some dragon like that. You don't, you don't fight a dragon without alertness and armor and a sword. That's why Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right? When, when you're alert to his schemes, you suddenly realize... The gra- their gravity. Right? When, when Ephesians 4.27, sometimes we just blow by this, Ephesians 4.27, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This devil. Right? You, you could read that and give no opportunity to the dragon. A passage like Revelation 12 ought to make you want to reconcile with people quickly. A passage like Revelation 12 should make you quick to avoid sinful anger and bitterness. Give no opportunity to this dragon in your relationships or in your marriage or in this church. Uh, When Paul calls false teaching the doctrine of demons... He sees, this, he sees this dragon. Sound doctrine is a big deal because there's a dragon trying to flood the church with lies. That's why we need pastors who teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Or uh, take something like pornography. And I mention pornography because a few of you are still looking at it. Those images that you are downloading, there is a dragon standing behind them, seeking to devour you. There's a dragon enslaving you and twisting your brain into beast-like imitations of himself. So you need to take up your sword and fight. Or consider other temptations like persecution. When we read things on, from Voice of the Martyrs, it's not just reporting these powerful regimes persecuting Christians. Behind those regimes is a dragon warring against the woman's children. We must see the world this way, or we'll be lazy in the fight against sin, and lazy in prayer, and lazy in evangelism, John's vision 
is meant to sober us. At the same time, when you view the world this way, chapter 12 becomes a source of encouragement in the fight. This vision encourages our faithfulness. I mean, think about how the number of times that Jesus mentions Satan in his, in his seven letters to the churches. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, Satan moves people to slander Christians. Chapter 2, verse 10, he leads authorities to imprison Christians. Chapter 2, verse 13, he leads others to kill Antipas and, and make the church fear. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24, the devil stands behind those who are tempting the church toward idolatry and sexual immorality. Chapter 3, verse 9, he's behind the church's economic hardship for preaching the gospel. You talk about a flood of various temptations and trials. The, the, the Christians who are first hearing this, they know what the flood feels like. And you can imagine the doubts that might creep in for them, right? Are we going down? Is, is the river going to overwhelm us? Should we just quit? Should we fear this devil who might soon kill us? Maybe we can compromise with the beast over here. And consider how this vision would have, would have answered their doubts and encouraged them to keep going and not give in. I mean, what about you? Do you ever feel like, like there's a torrent of trials about to drown you? Do you ever feel like, like a flood of evil is about to sweep you away? Or are there threats that you're facing right now making you afraid, making you want to, to give up? You feel like the darkness is closing in and about to suffocate you? Dear child of the woman, this story doesn't end with a ruthless dragon. It also tells us of the one who conquered him. The lamb has overcome. The story you tell yourself shouldn't end with hopelessness and despair. It shouldn't end with, this dragon is really great, period. No, it should end with, Christ has conquered. The Lamb has overcome. The blood, it's by the blood of Jesus that we overcome. The dragon is a threat, but here we see he is a defeated threat. If you belong to Jesus, he will not allow the dragon to sweep you away in the flood. It may mean suffering and death, but here this picture is showing us that we are still in Jesus' hands. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is on the throne, and He will soon end all evil. That's where our story is heading. Chapter 12 also informs how we conquer Satan. We conquer by Christ and by preaching Christ even unto death. We conquer by Christ and by preaching Christ even unto death. Go back to verse 11. Verse 11 says, They have conquered Him because of the blood of the Lamb. That's the first thing it says. So you will, you will not conquer evil by your own doing. You, you will not win this war by trusting in your own works to, to get by. 
You will not conquer by your perfect church attendance and, and your uh, uh, great contributions at care group and, 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 uh, and your ministry position. You will conquer by holding fast to Christ and what He has achieved for you on the cross. That's how you conquer. That's the ground. We talked about that, right, the last few times. That's the ground on which you stand. You also conquer by preaching Christ, even unto death. The rest of verse 11. They have conquered because of the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives, even unto death. The word of their testimony. That doesn't mean their personal testimony. It is you bearing witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. It's like the, the, the martyrs under the altar in chapter 6, verse 9, who bore witness to the Word of God. Uh, they preached Christ even when it cost their lives. When we love our lives in this world more than we love Christ, we do not conquer. This is kind of what Jesus says elsewhere about losing our souls when we love our lives in this world. But if we lose our lives for His sake in the gospel, Jesus says we save it. Revelation says we conquer. From the world's perspective, dying for the gospel looks like you're on the losing side. But from John's perspective, you're not, you're, you're not on the losing side, you're on the winning side. How did Jesus conquer? by laying down His life, and we follow in His footsteps. And when we do, we, we then become conquerors. We conquer not by taking the lives of others, we conquer by laying our own lives down for the sake of others. Choosing a life centered on Jesus will put you in the wilderness. Just like the woman and her children. Sometimes you may even feel that wilderness very pointedly. But I think we can also rest assured in this. In the wilderness, God will nourish you. That's another part of the story that we need to, to take, consider, and remember on a daily basis. We can rest assured that in the wilderness, God will nourish us. The Lord doesn't bring you through the wilderness to starve. He brings you through the wilderness to satisfy you with Himself. There are ways that He wants to nourish you that only come by following Him in the wilderness. Where did God reveal to the people that they do not live by bread alone? In the wilderness. Where did Jesus teach His disciples that He would be more than enough for them? when he fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. God will meet you there too. We are in the wilderness because he has carried us out of slavery. He is taking us to the true promised land and the new heaven and the new earth. And all along the way, he will nourish his people. When you are in the valley, his rod and his staff 
they will comfort you. When you are lonely, His presence by the Spirit will sustain you. When your soul is parched, His Word will feed you. When you're not sure about the next week, He comes and He spreads a feast before you to remind you of His love and what He has done on your behalf. So when you come to the Lord's Supper today, remember that we serve a King who nourishes us in this wilderness of tribulation. And He has overcome. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for this picture that John has painted, uh, that You have painted for us through John. And uh, I pray that it would serve us in coming days. It would serve our perseverance. Um, that it would inform what we preach to ourselves on a daily basis, and that we, by it, might find ourselves nourished, strengthened, encouraged to continue in the fight. In Jesus' name, amen.